Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we have a guest who has been on our podcast before, Dr. Michaela Hempen. And Michaela is here for a very special reason today. She's bringing us an update on the cribbing project that she's been working on. And she also has a very special request to make of all of us who have horses, who are concerned about their welfare, and particularly those of us who have known cribbers. So, Michaela, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back. And uh, what we're going to be talking about is cribbing. We're going to be talking about single subject design. We're going to be talking about the research project that you've been doing in conjunction with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. So would you like to jump in and remind people of what you've been doing? And and I think we probably should start with just a reminder of what cribbing is, because not everybody will be familiar with cribbing. Yeah, okay. So cribbing um, or crib biting, depending on where you are, um, how it's called, it's basically a behavior where the horse is very repeatedly um, showing a similar type of behavior and it's very well defined. So the horse is putting his incisor teeth on a, on a protruding surface and an edge in the stall, for example, and he pulls back and flexes the, the muscles of the ventri- on the lower neck and he draws in air. And often this is accompanied by a grunt and they keep on doing it repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly over a very long period of time. And anyone who's been in a barn with a cribber is so familiar with that sound. It's, it's like um, dripping water, you know, the Chinese torture test, uh, where you hear that <laughs> repeated grunt of the cribbing and for for many people it's just a really uh, oh fingernails on the blackboard sound because they're not only is it an annoying sound but they're also very concerned about the horse's welfare because it's been correlated to various health issues such as colics not direct causation but the correlation seems to be there is that would that be a fair statement yeah, well, what you can definitely say is there are proven negative health and welfare effects. So what is proven is that the it's bad for the teeth, obviously. Just imagine if the horse is constantly putting his upper incisor teeth on a surface and pulling back every day, thousands of times, that wears down the teeth. And I've seen teeth really worn down to the gum because of that. So that's definitely for sure um, happening. It's often associated also with weight loss um, and weak condition because they they seem to eat less. What is not proven as such is gastric ulcers because I think it just happens at the same time. So it's not a causal relationship. It just happens under the same conditions, both cribbing and ulcers. And uh, colic also is not proven, I think, 
from my research, um, checking the literatures, I found only one paper that is a little bit convincing, but it's also that is not a causal relationship, but they did a risk factor analysis. So going backwards from cases, they, they found with a very specific type of colic. Um, that's the epiploic foramen entrapment. And this colic is actually very rare. It's maybe um, 1% of all colic cases. So the, the evidence to say that it's linked with cribbing is not very good. You cannot exclude it. And also that it's something um, probably happens to animals under the same conditions. People talk about um, if there's uh, some heritability, but also that I find not very convincing because um, it's found most more in thoroughbreds in, um, in competition horses. But there you can also say again, these are they are kept under certain conditions. They are under stress of competing. So it's not not very convincing. But um, the other so apart from the health effects, I think also the welfare effects are there that horses are often sold off because they are cribbing. Because as you said, it's people are disturbed by it. They don't want to see it. And there's actually a paper um, came out this year on and that links to the podcast with Susan Cain because um, they looked at perceptions of um, of the tracks thoroughbreds and adoption and um, they've seen the negative effect on uh, adopting out of the track thoroughbreds where people do not want thoroughbreds with stereotypic behaviors uh, among which weaving and cribbing and so on so they are sold off they don't find adopters these horses are not wanted in barns so they have to go to barns maybe that are not first choice the 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 owners are often also desperate so it's um it's really a concern Grieving. just just perhaps to um explain why sometimes the people don't want them in the barn is because the sound is one thing but i think a lot of people are afraid that their horse is going to mimic the behavior which again has not been proven but is part of yeah that's true they mm -hmm. believe that yeah yeah so whether there is a scientific evidence the research to back up some of these beliefs they they are there <clears throat> they're very strong yeah, in the that's... horse world and there's a lot of prejudice against horses that crib and so there are various things that are done to try and stop the cribbing so the cribbing collars are one of the first sort of lines of defense as it were in terms of trying to stop cribbing so they'll put a a very tight collar up around the throat right right behind the ears and uh, tighten it down to try and create uh, enough discomfort that the horse stops cribbing and often the collars will work for a day or two and then the horses at least in my experience with people who've had cribbers the horses crib through the collars and yeah and then you have to make it tighter and some sometimes the collars have um, little spikes in them so that when they grab the wood and and flex their neck so their the neck muscles contract and but there's that pushing up against the collar and they get the little almost like a prong collar with the dogs they get the little spikes into their neck and they have another one that goes across the forehead that also causes pressure so so the cribbing collars don't work no they don't work the other thing people do is surgery. Uh, I've also seen a horse that 
they took out part of the muscle of the neck, the ventral mm. part of the neck. So he had a huge hole in there and he was he was the one that I saw that gripped so hard that his teeth were worn down to the gum. So oh. it did not help. And did he did he equip after the surgery? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, that was an old horse when I saw him. They did the surgery pff, years ago. Um, but that's the point. Uh, most solutions that are offered to us are offer very mitigated results. To be not too blunt, because we could say they just don't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I learned a new one that seems to be out there is um, called crib rings or gum rings, where they put rings around the teeth. Ooh. So in between the spaces of the incisor teeth, right at the gum, so that when they would uh, press down on the surface, it uh, hurts. Oh, that sounds barbaric. Yeah. And how does the horse eat with this thing? Well, I don't know. <laughs> or what, was the inventor clever enough to make it possible to eat, but to make sure there would be pain? I think they brought it from some other um, livestock um, where they use that and now they've applied it to, to horses and it seems that they can still eat but the hard pressure that they put cribbing uh, would be is too much. So it's, um, yeah, I don't think it's... So it's a problem still looking for a solution. A working solution. Well, there are also, you know, the, the good meaning, um, uh, the benevolent um, suggestions where you talk about enrichment. So environmental and social enrichments is what normally is suggested by vets. And these are always yeah. good suggestions in general. So get the horse, um, you know, more fiber, social contact, uh, out in the paddock, out in the field, training without stress. Um, so in terms of, you know, enriching with behavior, with training. But we all know that these are not things that reduce the cribbing efficiently. So they are good things to use when they should be done for every horse, whether it's cribbing or not. But this is not... Um, and an antidote to cribbing. So what got you interested, so so strongly interested in cribbing? We had um, a horse at our barn. He was called Quick. He was an eventing horse, a German warm blood. And uh, he, had, he was at the end of his career. He was uh, joining us and we have our horses in the herd and outside all day. So 24 hour turnout hey at libitum and um, i could not understand why this horse continued cribbing even though he was taken out of the stressful situation he was no longer competing he was only taken out for trail rides and mostly walk he had friends in the herd he was you know having hay and everything as you would suggest that should be done and he continued cribbing so bad, he was cribbing by putting his chin on top, on the back of the other horses. Wow. And I just got Graya, <laughs> she was two years old, and he was putting his chin on her back and cribbed on her. Wow. <laughs> it was, so, so uh, you know, can you imagine how I felt I about that? <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's a great example of how unpopular cribbers are. 
And so, so you, you don't, you can even say, well, you'll put them out in a big field and take away all the fences that they could crib on, the kinds of wooden fences that they could crib on. And this horse, There's still a horse yeah, to crib. They on. find a way. Wow. <laughs> they find wow. a way. They find a way. Yeah. And um, I could. That's I couldn't understand. I, I was so puzzled by that. That I got, uh, I got really hooked, and I absolutely wanted to find out a way of uh, solving this. And that was in the very early days of um, me investigating clicker training, because that was I got Graya in 2013, so that was yeah around that time. So I was three years into the clicker training, I think. So that led you then to Blondie. Yeah. So uh, that was my um, the initiation of my interest in that in that subject. So. I eventually, well, I was looking for a way how I could research this in a more formal setting. So, um, I mean, I've been reading and trying to find, you know, ideas how to solve this. And um, then I wanted to formalize it and I looked for uh, studies where I could do a thesis on it. And I didn't, I looked both in the veterinary field, but I also looked in the behavior analysis field, you know, because of the clicker training learning that I did. Uh, but I couldn't really find anything that I liked. So I said, okay, let me stay in the veterinary field, which is my field. It's easier for me. And um, so I did a master on equine science. And they very early, right in the first year, I said, look, I'm, I want to study this, but I want to do this as my master thesis. And it was asking them to accept that I'm going to use a behavior analytic approach to investigating treatments for or behavior change programs to crimming and they accepted to my surprise and uh, yeah then I asked um, Jesus Rosales Ruiz if he would be my supervisor and he also accepted and they accepted him as my supervisor and then I got my formal thesis subject on on, on cribbing and I could assess it in a in a in an academic academic setting and um, at the same time, at our barn, we had um, two cribbers. So one of them was Blondie. That's the quarter horse mare. She was three years old at the time that we talked about in the previous podcast. And Dominique, you will remind us which episode yes, that we was. we did this last year in September. So if anyone wants to review in more details, we did two episodes. We did episode 27 to explain what uh, single subject uh, research are. And we did on episode 28, uh, the cribbing research where uh, Michaela was at the time. And so these are a year ago. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, Cribby, um, Blondie uh, and uh, a PRE, a Spanish gelding named Tiburon. So we had these two cribbers there and both owners agreed for me doing this research with them. And uh, yeah, that's how I met Blondie and I'm still working with her. So Blondie, you've been working with her for how long now? Since 2016. That's, that's a pretty good period of time. I mean, you don't, you don't get to do a lot of three year research i mean they are some but i mean it's yes a good and i i mean i left the barn a couple of years ago so i left there uh, two and a half years ago i think 
um, I had my horses there for, for two years and then I moved to our current place. And so I'm still going there every weekend. I go to see Blondie every Saturday and Sunday to work with her. So the uh, when, when you say that you've been working with her for three years, it is important to note that that's not three years where you're seeing her every day, but it's three years in which you are able to do trials on two days out of the week. Exactly. And that's, that's part of the amazing thing if you look at the progress we've made and then we enter into the more uh, more fascinating aspects of this whole approach um yes so i'm only seeing her for a very brief time so maybe one hour even not even an hour uh, on saturday and an hour on sunday and then i don't see her again until the next saturday and sunday and right now the the research you have because I've, I've seen the videos, and it's really quite dramatic, the change in this horse and the change in the cribbing. But the research yeah. is at risk right now because Blondie's owner has basically gotten tired of dealing with her health issues and wants to sell her. So do you want to, do you yeah. want to talk about that now, or do you want to update people on the cribbing yes let's talk about that now and um, i talk a bit about after that i talk a little bit about the progress we've made and then i will talk about it again that sounds good (laughs) so um the current situation is that uh, the the owner has called me two weeks ago uh, not even a bit less than two weeks ago that he decided to sell her which is in a way not surprising because um some time ago, um, actually using the cribbing collar, it was after I came back from the ASAT conference, the last one. So that would have um, been this in year, February. in February. Yeah, so I came back and visited her and I found her with the cribbing collar really tight. It was very tight. I put my finger, you know, and could hardly put the finger in between the cribbing collar and her neck. And... Um, Shortly after that, I visited, I, I went back and I found her with the partial facial paralysis. So the vet had said, because he didn't know anything about the cribbing collar, he, um, he was thinking that she, because of the way she was lying down, maybe she was lying on the facial nerve and it got paralyzed because she was lying on something. Um, but later I told him that I found her with this tight collar and he confirmed that this could have been the, the reason for the paralysis. And so if you look at her, you see that her right side, the lower lip is hanging down. She can't close her mouth anymore completely. The right ear is a little bit lower it's a bit, you know, dripping to the side, dropping to the side. And she couldn't close her eyelids anymore. So the, the eye got dry and she got a keratitis, an infection, and she was almost losing the eye. So the owner did, um, did treat with eye ointment three times a day. And luckily she didn't lose it, but she was very close to losing the eye because of that. At that moment, I was already expecting the owner to sell her because... He's not very sentimental about his horses. 
So, um, yeah, but he, he, he kept her for the time being. But, uh, yeah, so he was, I don't know for why, what reason he kept her, but eventually now he said he was going to sell her. At that time, when that happened, I told him I was so scared he would sell her off. I said, please, should you ever decide to sell her, let me know first. So that I don't come there and all of a sudden she's gone. And he had, he had promised and to, to do that, which he did. He kept his promise and he told me um, that he's going to sell her and he's given me um, until the end of November to raise the money to buy her. Now, the thing is, I don't have that money right now to buy her. I can maintain her the monthly expenses for the boarding. That's, that's co- that would be covered because my friend where I keep my horses, she's also helping. But I cannot pay the, her you know, sales price because unfortunately she has a price tag. And so you want to buy her to continue the research and then to keep her? Yes. So the plan is if I can, with all the listeners' help, hopefully, buy her, then I will um, use the winter to do two things. One would be to continue the research until spring so that we we can strengthen what we have developed until now. And I will tell you later where we've, where we've come to, which is very exciting. So I want to strengthen that. And I also want to make sure that when we transition her to our place, this will be a change of the environment, which is a huge opportunity because we change environment. We can take what we create during the winter into a new environment and hopefully strip off the cribbing. That would be the ideal. And also we need to prepare her. Um, so because I will need to, we want to make her barefoot. Our horses are all barefoot. Uh, I probably need to do some trailer loading. I don't know how good she is with the trailer. So I can use the winter to do all, all of those things, prepare her well, finish or finish, well, continue working on the on the research now with a, with a definite time date stamp when we have to complete it. And then I will trans, uh, transition her to our place where then she will have all the other things. So she will be in a herd eventually after the, you know, getting her used to the, to the herd. Uh, she'll be out. She'll be um, 24-hour turnout. She'll have hair at libitum. She'll have social contact. She'll be living in a clicker training environment. So. And and you want to keep her for good after that? Oh uh, yeah, I don't I don't take horses for short, <laughs> unless I can't manage anymore for some reason. But that's not the plan. The plan is to keep her. So it's it's a it's an important opportunity because you've put three years of work into this project, you figured out some huge pieces of the puzzle that make it hopefully something that can be replicated for other horses. And to lose her at this point would be a, a real blow to the research. Yeah. But to be able to continue it through the winter and then to move her into a new environment it's an incredible opportunity to see what can be done for these cribbing horses. And it's, it's an opportunity that we, we don't want to lose. So you've set up a web page for her. Yes, I've set up a, a fundraising campaign on GoFundMe, but I've embedded it into a website which gives a bit more information so people can see her, her pictures, some videos of our progress, um, some background information. Um, also possibilities to contact me 
and possibilities to share and to also to sign up for a newsletter updates on Blondie because people who want to stay in touch, uh, I can send them, you know, pictures of her or small video clips yeah, or some important. Some we progress talk, reports. Yes. Yeah, we talked a bit uh, about that with Susan Kane because, you know, you see a lot of uh, fundraiser uh, for different horses and sometimes uh, people are very generous, but they're actually uh, giving their money to a system that is not what they think it is. And so we know with you that you're going to keep her and that we're going to be able to know what's happening to her over the coming years so it's, yes, it's not just a fundraiser yep. that people lose track of the horse and it's a fundraiser with a very specific purpose in mind which is not just to help this individual horse but to help all cribbers that's right so it, it has a ripple effect that very much goes beyond the welfare for this one particular horse and how much do you need, uh, Michaela, for, to buy her? What's yeah, the fundraiser? so I put the fundraiser on 6,000 euros. Um, that's for two reasons. One is I want to raise um, the sales price, which is 4,500. Um, but I also want to add there the cost of publishing the research in an open access journal which is oh. 1,500. If you are wow. publishing a scientific paper and you send it to a um, you know, to a normal journal that is that you have to pay for the article, which is normally like 50 euros, roughly, to pay for the article, it wouldn't cost me that much. But I think that would be such a waste. So I want to publish it if it's accepted, you know, if it has the quality to be accepted, it should be an open access journal. And uh, they, they, I love that. yeah, but they cost it, it costs 1500 euro. So <laughs> that's not cheap. So buying it out of my own pocket, that would be a burden. But I thought this would be a chance to combine it because the purpose of the fundraiser is to keep Blondie, you know, us to be able to share this research. So I have to count that in. So that's why I added to 6,000. Excellent idea to put that in. <laughs> Thank you. I think. So if anybody who's listening does want to contribute to this project, what is the where do they go on the internet yeah i am hosting it um so the website url is not so easy to remember so the best is to put okay. it in the show notes so it's uh, blondieontraport.net but nobody will remember that so because then i don't have to pay for the hosting okay. so that's um so it doesn't have a very neat url but we can put it in the show notes okay definitely certainly also by emailing uh, you or me we can also send the link as well okay so that that actually may be the easiest for people to remember so if if they email me and they can find my email through equosity.com through the clickercenter.com they can email dominique through equosity.com then we can put them in touch i mean i can i can say the, the address if yeah, people just- Okay. Just, say it, just spell it once and... Uh, okay. Yeah. So the, the URL is Blondie, which is B-L-O-N-D-I-E, Blondie, dot pages dot ontraport, which is O-N-T-R-A-P-O-R-T dot net. 
blondie.pages.ontraport.net. Excellent. And we will definitely have that information up in the show notes. Yes. And and I'll put it up on uh, the the Click the Teaches Facebook group as well so that people can can So how long uh, just uh, how long will the fundraiser be uh, open? Until the end of November. Okay, so it's pretty it's only like a couple of weeks, so it's not something that no, you it's put, not it's not that long. you delay. You do it now. <laughs> exactly, we do it now and I want to you know, have her and um, yes, because then also it would be also much easier for me to do the things, you know, then I can create the environment I need, um, manage the horse in the boarding barn as I as she should be managed. I can also start doing the transitioning. I can start doing the training and yeah, that would save me a lot of time if it, because if I want to move her in spring, um, you know, the time is, and I don't want to leave her there for too long because it's not a nice environment where she is living at the moment. So um, it's sort of a balancing, <laughs> shouldn't be too long that she stays there. So I, I don't want to drag it. And I also don't want to risk that the owner <clears throat> decides otherwise. And sells her off to somebody else. That's the other big risk. So he, yeah. he's, he's giving me until the end of the month. And Although I doubt that there will be a big lineup to buy her. Unless it's for just meat, which is something else. No, no. But, you know, we have totally different views on this. <laughs> the owner and myself. I see her as a rescue case. I mean, she is adorable. She has a beautiful color. How would you call that color in English? Is it Palomino? Yes really beautiful she has a she's a quarter horse but she has a very very fine head she's uh, she's she's very a fine horse really beautiful and uh, the owner thinks he's put in a lot of work and training so he does not see her as a rescue he sees her as a valuable horse to sell uh, I don't anyway, know. Well, so the idea is to 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 act now and not um, postpone yes. donation. Uh, yes, if yes. People want to do it. Um, so now's the time. Share a little bit about the research. What is what is the approach that you've taken? We're we're talking about one horse, so we're talking yes. about single subject design to start out with. Yes. Yeah, so the the um, general you know, approach in veterinary research is normally group designs. So you would look you would look at a group of horses and compare them with a control group. This is the standard design. And because horses are expensive, they usually do it like a group of eight and a group of eight. So a group of experimental horses and a group of control horses. For some reason, it's just always eight and eight. And then they take averages of both groups and uh, see whether that is statistically significant. So that's a, that's the standard design. But the, the, the research results that have come out of this, at least for the cribbing, have not helped us much. So um, since I was looking into behavior analytic approaches, which is new to me because it's not my, it's not my field of science. I come from, from, from biology, veterinary science for medicine. So we, I'm not used to this single subject designs. Um, so I did a lot of studying and since I thought, okay, we have not 
we in veterinary field, we have not found uh, a good suggestion how to address this behavior. I have to look somewhere else. So in the behavior analysis research, there were many more papers that I thought, okay, this could be applied, even though it's with people, but um, it could be applied to the to the horses. And that led me to the single subject design. And the more I read about it and the more I get to know it, the more convinced I am that this is a superb approach to doing it. Because you, so why in a group design, you have the control group to, to make sure that the, the effect you are testing actually has an effect because you, you then compare it back to the control and see what I changed, the criterion I changed. Um, so that is the intervention in, in this case uh, did have effect because it's different, statistically different from the control group. Now in a single subject design, you have, you still have the controls, but it's in the same individual. So I'm studying one individual. I take a baseline of what we have now. I apply an intervention and I change one criterion, that's my intervention. And I go usually go back to what I had before and see what has changed. So if in the baseline, for example, I would have, say the horse is crew biting, let's make it extreme case, the horse is crew biting in 10 minutes, 100 times, then I apply an intervention and the horse does in 10 minutes only two crew bites. And then I go back to the conditions as they were before and it goes back to 100 then I have the control right there in between the two original conditions. So I go from 100 to 2 to 100 grip bytes per minute. So there I have the control group that I have in a, in a, in a standard research um, design, study design, is in the same animal, but in the design I have it built into the experiment. I don't know if that's clear. Yes, it's very clear. Yeah, and can you explain what happens after, let's say you finish the research and you have demonstrated for this horse that this intervention has been successful. Tell us what happens after, why it becomes valid, starting from there. To me, it's, it's more valid than the group designs. It's far more valid than the group designs. It's, uh, it's better. It's a better design. But tell us about replicating this with other subjects you're still replicating you're still replicating because um after that you would you would repeat it with a you can repeat it with another individual for example so you could do exactly the same study and you replicate with another other individual and this way you get even more strength so if you would do it um and the more you replicate the more you replicate, the more, the more, the stronger your evidence. Stronger. Yes, the stronger your evidence. Yeah. Yes. The same would apply to in a group design, you would increase the number. So instead of having eight and eight, mm -hmm. you would do 800 and 800, then it becomes much stronger as an evidence. But nobody can do that because you don't get so many animals. And on top of it, you are still averaging. That's right. And an average in the case of an intervention may not be as efficient as what you're doing. No, because you're losing a lot of information averaging. You know, I, I, I don't know if you've heard this before, but I have a friend of mine, he always says, you know, averages. If your uh, feet are in the ice and your head is in boiling water, <laughs> as an average, you're very comfortable. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens because very often if you have extreme numbers, you go back to zero in the average. 
Yeah. And then you start throwing these numbers out. You know, you say, oh, they're outliers. So they are, they are <laughs> because you don't want them. So you throw them out. And because you, you have so many in your sample size, you know, say, oh, I can get lose. I can, I can lose those, those extreme outliers. But you are losing a lot of information. So all this to say that single subject designs are recognized in the, in the behavior analysis. They are used a lot, but they are recognized as valid approach to researching. They are definitely, but um, uh, in my field, so if I talk about, you know, biology in the widest sense, they are not used to these type of studies. Um, so that's why I was, so I said it initially, I was surprised that the university accepted this design when I suggested mm -hmm. it. I was surprised. But even you, you were resistant to it when you first Yeah, yeah, sure. It, and then you fell in love. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, it's beautiful. Now when I read um, <laughs> research papers, I always go, why do you take an average? <laughs> you are losing it. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Should I explain quickly what we did? Yes. Yeah. Let's dive into your research on this topic now. <laughs> so um, maybe at the very beginning, what we did was a 24-hour observation simply to find out What's the pattern? So I set up a, a camera and video recorded her behavior for a couple of days. And then I would do a sort of an ethogram and I would count how often she grips. And then I make out a graph and I see a pattern, try to see a pattern. And in Blondie's case, I did with two horses actually. So in Blondie's case, it was very clearly related to the hay feeding. So the hours of feeding, the cribbing peaked, and in between it went da down a little bit. Interestingly, the other horse that I observed as well, Tiburon, he, uh, for him it was the opposite. So he was peaking when he had nothing to eat. So like in the middle of the night, you know, when they were fed roughly every six hours, except in the middle of the night. So they skipped that one six hours, and around that time he peaked. So two horses, two completely different patterns which is also overlooked in the veterinary lit literature world usually because they average. <laughs> um, so we, we found that pattern and then we, um, we began trying to influence it. So we saw that she, she picked mostly around feeding and then we said, okay, let's see what changes if we shift the time of feeding. So they're normally fed at 6.30 in the morning so we took a baseline at 6.30. So again, filming, video, videoing everything. Then we fed at 6. So I asked the, the person who's feeding. He was very kind to collaborate. So he fed at 6. Then he fed at 7. And then he fed at 8. But feeding the horses at 8 o'clock is very late. So I could not expect the horses of the other owners that were in the same barn that they were, to accept that their horses are fed two hours later than normal. So they were fed at seven and uh, Blondie at eight. But this was very interesting because um, so shifting it to seven o'clock, her cribbing shifted to the time that we fed her. So it moved along with the time of feeding. But interestingly, when we fed the other horses at seven and she was fed at eight, she started cribbing at the time that the other horses were fed. And she showed the same behavior as if she would have had hay there. So she put her, hay down, uh, her head down. She was browsing, 
you know, imitating feeding, taking hay. And she would go and crib and go back down into the bedding, trying to see if there was any hay. So she did sort of synchronize with the other horses, even though she didn't have any hay. And that made us think that, you know, the, the cribbing is under the stimulus control of feeding or anticipation of feeding. And so this was very important that we could influence the cribbing by the time we feed. That's important because this also nobody is normally looking at it. They, they may look at, uh, I mean, there are publications on that the cribbing peaks when they get fed. Usually they look at grains. So they normally don't look, I found only one very old paper on hay feeding. But what is reported is that the cribbing increases when they get grains concentrate feed. So we could show that by shifting the time of feeding, we could influence when she cribs. That was important because it's an operant behavior. We can influence it by the environment. Huge thing, actually. Then uh, the next thing that what we did was I did one tiny, tiny little session with her of clicker training. So I uh, and I fed her carrot pieces. And so I tried just, just to do a targeting session, only one, because when I fed her the carrot, that was the on button and she went cribbing straight away. So I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. Stopped it immediately. But I found an on button. So I could, by feeding her a piece of carrot, make her crib. Okay, now this would not be important uh, as such, but we used that to see if we could interrupt the cribbing. So I would feed her a piece of carrot and immediately after I would scratch her whenever she's not cribbing. So I give her a piece of carrot, she goes cribs, I scratch and actually her cribbing went down to zero when I scratched. So, you know, cribbing is maintained by potentially a positive reinforcer, but it could compete with the scratching. So that means this opens the door to operant conditioning techniques. So if I, the idea was then to think, okay, can I offer her a reinforcer that is stronger than the reinforcer she gets from cribbing? And we tested different, different um, approaches there, but the important thing was that this is a potential for addressing it with operant procedures. And then we did um, different things. I did some, some targeting and uh, actually we transitioned her from uh, instead of using carrots to using hay, which in initially the hay uh, triggered the cribbing. So I used very little pieces. So I transitioned basically the reinforcer from carrots to hay and uh, we did some wall targeting. You know, I don't want to go into the details because it's a lot. We tried many different things, but what we came out with as the important piece to this is stimulus control and creating clean loops. These are the two concepts that are key. Clean loops. We need a clean loop without cribbing, no cribbing. And if I get this kernel of behavior, you know, this kernel of, of um, loop. Wanted behavior. Yeah, without the cribbing in it. Um, that involves food, which is a trigger. So can I give her food without getting the cribbing? Because 
the cribbing is on a stimulus control of feed. Yeah. So can I can I create a loop that is so small that does not contain the cribbing, get the cribbing out of it, and then expand the loop so I get a clean loop that does not does not contain the cribbing. That's so exciting, and and so it's sort of like sitting yeah. on the edge of your seat and I'm reading a mystery novel. So could you? <laughs> How did you do it? Yeah. Well, we did um, there so. Here's the other thing that we learned from Jesus, I think, is that we can work with the environment. Yes. If you only focus on consequences and only look at, you know, your ABCs and focus on behavior and consequences, you are missing the whole, the whole picture. So you need to look at, how would you call it? Um, the relation, stimulus, response relation. I got it. Stimulus, yes. response relation. So... It's all, it's all part of it. So you have to look at the environment, the behavior, and what is all encapsulated in, in, that, in that clean loop. So what we need is we need to create a condition, a very clear, very clear condition for, for the horse, that in this environment, under these conditions, gribbing is not part of it. So it's that expression he has of recreate the conditions and the response will occur. So if you've eliminated a behavior, but all of a sudden you find, whether it's in an animal or yourself, but all of a sudden you find yourself under the same environmental, the stimulus conditions that occurred when that behavior was occurring, you'll find yourself repeating that behavior. This is November for many of us, Thanksgiving holiday is coming up. And so when people go home, when adults go home to visit their their parents and all of a sudden they find themselves acting like six-year-olds. It's that kind of uh, thing that we're looking at is under certain conditions, you will get the behaviors that were associated with those conditions. Well, yes. So it's, it's, it's the whole, the stimulus response relation in the sense, the environment is part yes. of it. So you are not just looking at yeah. behavior and the effect of it, but the whole environment where this happened. Right. So bringing that back to the cribbing then, the environmental setup became really key to this. Exactly. And this is why we could or I could progress with her even though I only spent so little time because we made I made very clear conditions. I said, okay, when I come, I this is our procedure, this is what we do, this is our training condition. So what you need to do, so what's key? What's key is to find the perfect clean loop, even if it's just a millisecond, and in a, in a new environment. So this is a, the training condition. And then you start changing the environment, maintaining the clean loop so you can expand the loop by changing the environment. So you're not necessarily, you're not expecting the animal to behave differently. So you want to maintain that loop but you start changing the environment. So I start with a very clear training environment. So I don't have, I don't have a different training room. So I work in her box. This is where she lives almost 24 hours, except the one hour a day where she gets out. So I have the challenge of creating a training environment that is different from her standard environment. So I have to change the environment and you can do that very easily by just putting up something that is different. So you put up a curtain, you, you put up a, hang a picture on the wall or whatever, something is different. 
So um, I used the curtain and I also, on Alex's suggestion actually, I took her out in the paddock that is attached to the box as the start of the training session. So I ha she knows very clearly when I come, we go out in the paddock and then I introduce her back in. Now we start the training session. And when you introduce her back in, the change in her stall has been made. Exactly. So, she, so this yes. is like a new environment. This is our training session. It's very clear, new environment, new conditions. This is completely new conditions. And now it's important that in these conditions, there's no cribbing. And how long do you have? What's the duration of your kernel so far? 40 minutes. Ooh, that's good, without cribbing. And that is because I get tired and I have to go and see my horses. <laughs> but have you done this at mealtime, which was a trigger for her? I give her hay and she eats her whole ration of hay for 40 minutes. Without cribbing. For without cribbing. Wow. For 40 but minutes. in the training environment, yeah. this is not yet back in the normal environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the next challenge is the, 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 um, the duration, I think, in the training environment is not the challenge because since this has been so clear from the beginning, this is training condition. There is no cribbing. It's like you, Alex, with Panda. No, is it not? It's sort of the same thing because you are, you've been so consistent and all the behaviors are under complete yes. stimulus control, aren't they? It's the same, same approach. Well, I, I always think of the people who smoke and they can go into a movie theater and sit for two hours in the movie theater and not crave a cigarette. But as soon as they step out into the lobby, all they, all they can think about is getting outside to get a cigarette. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Smoking is pretty, uh, I also use that example always to explain. So under, under the new conditions that you have established in the stall and which you are currently beginning to fade out, there is no cribbing that you can give her her hay ration. There's no cribbing. And it's, it's just, it's just astounding. It's astounding. I'm there with open mouth. I can't believe it. I have, um, she would be being in front of the cribbing surfaces. So I have the cues indicating this is training condition. This is no, no cribbing conditions. She is with her mouth in front of the cribbing surface. She does not crib. And you have this over and over and over again. Yes, it's consistent. It's unbelievable. As soon as I remove the, the, the cues that say this is training condition, she cribs like a berserker. She goes one, she has, she has a very high frequency. She cribs once per minute over the, over 24 hours, once per minute. As soon as the cue is gone. So now the challenge is to 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 fade the training condition into the normal conditions without recreating you know that that the it re-enters the cribbing so this has to be done very carefully so i have to do this with a errorless learning fading very carefully yeah because someone could argue maybe that what's maintained what why you're getting this is because she's bored when you're not there but yeah. And as soon as no. you go away, boredom comes back? No, no, because she was cribbing when Michaela was ah, there that's before. True. That's but true. Th this is why this is why this fundraising is so important, because this is a critical yeah. step in the research. And to stop now 
without being able to make this transition back into normal conditions That's a big piece. and no cribbing. It's a very big piece. Because you're right, she, Michaela was training her before and she was still cribbing. So you will not believe when what I the videos that I've put on the yes. website. Alex, you looked at it. Well, explain what you saw. You'll you'll explain it better because I'm on a slow internet. You know, I watch pieces okay. of it, but I didn't watch. Well, the you know whole thing. what? You know what? I'm not going to tell people. I'm not going to tell people. You have to go uh, find the website and look at the videos. It's it's yeah. astounding. I still yeah. cannot believe it. Yeah. People have to go and see it. Really, it's astounding. This, of course, is not yet, you know, uh, is we are not there yet. But we, I know it's working. Stimulus control is, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. For me, it's, uh, I, this, I didn't study this, you know, this is something I've discovered, discovered thanks to clicker training. But it's so powerful. We don't need to think about, you know, if we want a strong behavior, we need to train like, you know, 10,000 hours and, and all of that. No, if you are clear, you have a clean loop, you have clear conditions, you know what you're doing, you prepare it really well, and then you ask your trainer to do it. They learn very quickly and it's very strong. It's extremely strong. Yeah, because you're against something that is so strong that even in the face of pain, like the, the cribbing color causes pain and they still crib. So it's super strong what you're against. But think about what Michaela just said, because that's not just for cribbing. No, it's for all training. This understanding is for yeah. all training. and But we're just taking this extreme example. And by demonstrating it with Blondie, the ripple effect, the change in our understanding of how to teach behavior is enormous. This is a piece that is not well understood. The stimulus control part is just not, it's not nearly as well understood. We've put our focus on consequences, and rightly so, rightly so. But we need to broaden out our perspective. And this is an important research project that Michaela is involved in for so many reasons. Let me yes. tell you a funny anecdote. <laughs> Stimulus control. Now that, you know, I start, uh, I still don't grasp it fully, but I start, you know, getting the gist of it. Last um, Easter, I went um, on holidays. I went back to Africa, you know, where I lived for a couple of years. So I went back to my village where I spent so much time and I've not been there for seven years. So I was back in my village and you know what? The local language came back to me like nothing. Wow. No difficulty at all. I was talking with the people in a language that I have not spoken for seven years. And I was just there thinking, ah, that is stimulus control. I yes. got it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it comes back. Put me back in those conditions. It's right back. Yeah. In a positive way. <laughs> That's not like the smoking. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah. We don't forget, it's all there. You just have to recreate the conditions. Well, we've, we've talked about the, I next one of my horses that used to be very afraid of going through doors and uh, through clicker training for many years, he was fine. And when the retirement uh, center was closed and he went back to his old um, type of training, it came right back. He was again afraid of going through doors.
and not he, he wasn't beaten up or anything it was just a few little things you know little yank on the on the lead rope and it all came back recreate the conditions and the behavior will occur this a uh, profound understanding profound and i've talked many times about when people say oh you know can you change this can you in quotes, fix this problem. And I'll say, you never erase anything. If a horse has learned, for example, to pull a lead rope out of your hand, and then you do a lot of training so he learns to walk nicely beside you, that behavior is not erased. That knowledge of, of pulling away is not erased. You don't erase anything. Recreates the conditions and behavior will reoccur. So it's up to us to create the conditions in which we get behaviors that are useful both to us and to the animals that are under our care. So it's uh, uh, to turn it into something that has a very benign intent behind it. And, and so Blondie is, she's an important piece in our really understanding this. And right now, Michaela, you've, you've come a huge way in terms of looking at cribbing from a completely different perspective in a way that cribbing has not been looked at before. I think that's a fair statement to make. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. what we don't want is to have this project interrupted at this point. I mean, you could, I'm sure, find many other horses who crib. They're sadly fairly common. And you could begin the research over again and replicate the process and probably do it fairly efficiently now that you know more about what the approach that you're going to be taking. But it would be a shame to lose this opportunity to take this research to this next step of shifting back into the original environmental conditions and seeing if we can do that and not have the cribbing reoccur. So that's really where you are right now, isn't it, with, with Blondie? Yes, and I would add, I'm not sure I would do it again because, you know, I'm doing that is my, right. in my free time. Right. And uh, it's, uh, this is uh, not my job. This is uh, a hobby. And uh, I've put a lot of, yeah, free time into this because I'm, I'm fascinated by it and I'm, I'm passionate about it. But once the, paper, once the paper is out, other people will be able to... Um, to continue well that would be fantastic I mean that that was would be exactly what I would want so um, um, you know to that would be the the repetition the replication that is needed actually I think also the behavior analytic papers and behavior analysis they are far better in describing uh, the procedure than the biology papers are they are really very very precise you have to, yeah. Um, yeah, because you need to be able to recreate, right? So in, in, in biology, we normally have standard protocols in terms of uh, laboratory methodology. So that's well developed, but they're not so good in describing training or behavior. You know, we know we all know these papers, right? Where you go, yeah, okay, I see your conclusion, but how did you train this? Right. Because they are not describing the training very well. Yeah, and stimulus, stimulus control, we know that it can be a tiny change in the environment and everything is different for the animal. And what you did, because I've, I've been to the barn, you know, I've met, I've met Blondie and I've seen the conditions under which she lives. And it's a, it's a boarding barn. She lives in a, in a stall in a, 
barn with other horses. And that's a fairly common type of living arrangement for many horses. And so what you what you did with Blondie is something that could easily be replicated by many other people who have cribbers. It's not as though you are... Oh, yeah, are... definitely. Very easy. Very easy. Very easy. You're not... She's not living under some unusual set of conditions that would be hard no. for somebody to replicate or imagine, well, how could I do it with my horse? It would be very easy. Once this research yeah. paper is published and the details are there, it would be very easy for somebody who owns yeah. a cribber to look at that and to replicate something very similar for their own horse. So there's enormous hope. And that's the beauty of it. That's that really is the beauty of it of the whole these whole approaches because yeah yeah you can we are just talking about a strategy yes how to arrange the environment you know when to do what that can be yes. done anywhere by anybody so we are not talking about laboratory analysis where you have to do blood analysis and cortisol levels and heartbeat and it's not necessary at all and do you see that this could also be done in the absence of the owner? Because during the night, you're not there. Yes, because, yeah, absolutely. Because we, are, we, we create this clean loop and then f fade it into the normal environment. You, it's not important how much time you spend there, but the time you spend there must be very well designed. So this could be extrapolated to 24 hours without having necessarily the presence of the owner. Uh, presence of anybody really yes i uh, that well of course this is to be proven we don't know yet so um but i'm extremely hopeful at the moment i'm i'm very very excited at the moment because being able to i mean eating a whole ration of hay you should have seen her she got i if i gave her only you know three pieces of of hay she would she would go and crib she can eat a whole ration of hay without even looking at the cribbing surface. It, this is amazing. It's amazing. And I'm not holding her back. She could easily go. Mm -hmm. She could easily go. But it's because there is the cue of the training condition. Yeah. That for her, it's, it's not there. It's just not possible. I just can't crib. Impossible. The thing is, she should not learn that she can crib. Because then I have lumped. Mm -hmm. I have lumped. So if I fade the criterion too quickly, going from the training condition to the standard normal, her normal life condition, if I lump and I make the step too big, then she may start cribbing again. So you have to do it in a, in a, in a errorless, errorless learning approach. So you have to fade it that there's no mistake. And make and, it that and way the, bigger. The, the move can be both a blessing, but it can also be a big challenge when she moves. It, it can bring her a lot forward. So there are two points that I, I want to make sure before moving her is that, well, actually, there are three points, I think. Apart from the fact that I need to prepare her in terms of uh, the feet and trailer loading and so on, there are another two. One is I want to make the research so meaningful that when we publish before moving her, this is meaningful because otherwise people will say, ah, oh, yeah, you moved her to a new environment where she's with friends and she has hay. Of course, she will stop cribbing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's 
not helping. So we have to publish something meaningful before she moves. But that is just another part of the piece. So after that, we, that would continue because then we have to prepare the move very well. So what I was thinking is, you know, how can I expand, make this loop bigger and transfer it together with her into the new environment so that there cribbing does not even come to her mind. You know, you start with an environment where there's no cribbing surface whatsoever. There's no association with previous experience that this is a place to crib because it's not there. She has never cribbed there before. So we can make advantage of this clean slate if you want. But then in really arrange the environment so well that the cribbing does not even come to mind. And if this, if you're successful with this, she will not crib anymore unless I bring her back to the old stall. However, there will be a bit of stress during the move, which... But it's not the stress that triggers the cribbing. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know yet. We're still to find out. <laughs> We're still to find out. But knowing already that there is a street to follow, that there is, you know, this can actually work, yeah. is already so much better than what has been there before. It's, it's very exciting and it really was astounding because I'm on a slow internet, so watching video is it's it can be a challenge it freezes up every every couple seconds it's like oh right the horse is not cribbing oh the the video is frozen but um <laughs> even with that the the change in her i mean there she is look just eating a you know and the cool thing is i showed this um not to to julia and yep. to my friend and uh, just after I came back, because I was so excited <laughs> about the video, I said, I have to show you something. And she only saw it on this on the screen of my video camera, so not, not very good. But what she was saying that these are two different horses. Yeah. The first one, totally stressed out, you know, cribbing and nervous. And the other one is just eating calmly, you know, her hay. So she said, these are two different horses. It's like the, the two video clips that I show from the Poison Q research project, the, the dog under the yeah, Ben condition exactly. and the dog under the Punir condition. And one, the dog is, his head is up, his tail is wagging. You see these lovely clean loops. You see lots of energy. And under the Punir condition, you see this dog who looks sick. His head is down. His tail is down. There's no energy. He's there. No, the loops are not clean. He's wandering around the room. It's just you think this cannot be the same animal. It cannot be the same animal, and yet it absolutely is. It was filmed on the same day. Uh, it's just different conditions produce completely different responses and it makes me think when we moved so when when the horses were at the boarding barn it was it was not for me a particularly happy place after a while there were a lot of things that caused a lot of stress in terms of being able to give the horses the care that I wanted to give them and so I was often grumpy and I didn't want to bring that with me into the new environment. I didn't want to bring the grumpiness, the displeasure, the all of those feelings along with the horses and just attach them to this new, wonderfully clean environment that we were moving them into. So I was very aware that the environment does create different behavioral responses. 
And I was very careful about what I transferred. So yes, I transferred my wonderful horses, but I left behind the grumpiness, the grouching, the the feelings of displeasure at being in an environment with them. And it works. Well, you it makes me think when people have addiction, they know that one of the they must not put themselves in the environment that cues their addiction. You know, if you you want to stop smoking, well, a cup of coffee will be a trigger. Right. And so you you hear that in the addiction programs that, you know, the environment is part of the solution, that managing the environment in order not to trigger. I think anyway that you hear that a lot. And in a way, cribbing is an addiction for the horse, I think. Would you agree with that, uh, Gaila? Well, well, I think I use the example of smoking a lot to mm-hmm. to explain to explain it. I don't know if it's completely accurate, but it uh, it gives a good yeah. analogy. Definitely. Well, it is exciting. So, the research has already you have you've shifted how we think of cribbing because people weren't, we weren't thinking of it as an operant behavior that could be altered, not not in the way that you've been looking at it. The approaches have all been, you know, put a cribbing collar on, create discomfort to try and stop the behavior, um, change the change the the welfare conditions, get the horse turned out more, get him out more in a herd, and hope that the cribbing diminishes. And hope he doesn't crib on your horse's back. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. on your fence line or yeah. anything else. So. This is this is already just a, a really hopeful and important piece that you've added to this puzzle. And the point is that you want to go on. You want to add more. Yes, and yes. Also credit, of course, Jesus Gonzalez-Ruiz and also Mary Hunter and, and yourself, Alex, because, um, you know, you've given me a lot of a lot of input and uh, yes without that we wouldn't be where we are today i've been very pr- privileged thank you to be able to sit in and listen in on some of the some of the discussions with with jesus and where you've you've updated him on the progress with blondie and all right so what do we do next where do we go next and some of the brainstorming sessions of of how to proceed and they've been fascinating it's been a fascinating project and we need to see it through we need to see it through yes to, to this next stage. And in order to do that, you have to buy Blondie because she's going to be sold. Yes. So that brings us back to the crowdfunding that you're doing. So could you explain that again uh, briefly for people? Yes. Yes. So yes, please do, do help. Um, as I said, I want to buy her. She'll have a good place. She'll be with my other two clicker-trained horses and the other two that are also in a positive environment, partly clicker-trained, but all really nice environment for horses. And to do that, I need help to buy her of the owner who wants to sell her, um, who keeps her for me until the end of the month, and then he will start um, contacting other people to buy her. So I've set up a fundraiser and uh, which is on GoFundMe, but I've created a website to make it easier for people and to give additional information. So there's a website up and running that is on blondie.pages.org. 
ontraport.net, which we'll put in the show notes. Or you can write an email to Alex, Dominique or myself to send you the link. You can, of course, donate any amount of money you want. You know, starting, I think the lowest is five euros or possibly five dollars. And in return, as a thank you gift, I will, I'm happy to send you um, results from the, from the master thesis. And I will also keep everybody up to date. So there's also, if you do not want to donate, you can also subscribe to an email list uh, where I keep you updated on Blondie's progress. And yes, please do support. So uh, it would be it would be a shame to see her go in on so many levels. She's she's a wonderful horse. She's so so nice, and I think she can offer also a whole lot of other things to to our community in in learning. And I'm happy to share all her transformation uh, in other aspects as well, because obviously she will go through the foundation lessons of Alex's curriculum, and I'll share that as well, obviously. Excellent. So you need 6,000 euros to buy her and then to publish uh, yes. the research. Uh, yes. And you need this in the next couple of weeks. Yes, that would be that would be really a big help. So um, we don't lose her. And I'm assuming that those of us who are here in the U.S., that if we make the donation, that the currency exchange is, is done through the system. Yes, because GoFundMe is an international, it may actually be US-based, I don't know, but it's an international, so, you know, the browser adjusts to your, you know, setting, also changes language and currency and all whatnot. So it's, it also has lots of uh, share opportunities. So if you are on social media, please share by, you know, all these social media channels or emails, share it a lot. It's a short time that we have, so the more people spread, the better. Yes. Share to cribbing horse owners. Yes. 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 Definitely. Um, Good. Yeah, please do. Well, we'll do the best we can for you and hope that we'll hope that this has a good outcome and that the research can continue. Yes. And consider Blondie is young. She's she's six years old. She has a whole life ahead of her. She's very young. Um, Yes. So that's right. That's let's right. give her a good life. And one that does not include cribbing collars and uh, that cause facial paralysis. Yeah. Yes, definitely. She suffered enough yes. for her few years of life. Yes. Yeah, it's enough now. <laughs> now she's all blossom and shine as she should be. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you very much. And we will get this up. I'll get this out as fast as I can. And we'll put the web address in the show notes. We'll get people contacting you and hopefully this will have a happy outcome and maybe you can come back in the spring of yes. 2020 and let us know where you're at oh i hope so yes, yes. i hope After so the move, maybe yes that for that to be possible people yes. need to help me to get her <laughs> that's right that's right yes i love it thanks for having me thanks so much you are very welcome yeah good luck with that uh, i'm sure i'm sure people will want to contribute Oh my God, I just watched the two videos that Michaela talked about. I mean, it is amazing to think that these two videos were recorded on the same day. I mean, it's, it looks like a miracle. You have to go look at these videos. They're on the fundraiser page. The address is in the show notes. I'm telling you, it's hard to believe. 
Um, so please donate for this because what you'll see with your two own eyes is so promising. And I also want to remind you that in the show notes, if you want to hear more about uh, the single subject design research and the cribbing episode we did last year, these are also in the show notes. You'll find the links. They were recorded uh, last in September 2018, so about a year ago. Um, but at the very least, please go see those two videos, the before the training session and the after training session. It will blow your mind. <laughs>